Hey, I'm Adrian Lee, and I'm thrilled to be back for the second season of City Space, the Globe and Mail's podcast about how to make our cities better. We're back with six fresh episodes we're really excited about to explore some of the big issues that intersect with an even bigger question. What does it mean, exactly, to live together in a city? Fortunately, we didn't miss anything big in the news that affected Canadian cities, right? Sounds of horns blared all over downtown Ottawa on a frigid night. Just take a look around. We are in front of the Parliament buildings right now, and there are already hundreds of protesters, dozens of trucks lining Wellington Street. From late January, when the first protesters' trucks and cars piled into downtown Ottawa, to mid-February, when the Canadian government enacted emergency laws to remove them from the streets, Canada's capital city of Ottawa was locked down. There was, of course, a lot to say about the so-called Freedom Convoy. Why are people so angry about government restrictions around COVID-19? Why were the police unable to clear the protests over the course of three whole weeks? What happened in City Hall that allowed the protests to take over all of Ottawa in the first place? And was the federal government right to enact the Emergencies Act? But what if I told you that the Ottawa occupation was also a story about the ways in which cities are designed? National capitals, after all, are cities too. But they're unique ones. They have to be places for people to live, and they have to be places for government with administrative buildings that allow bureaucrats to do the work of governing a country. That means it's not enough for a national capital to only be a livable city for the people who call it home, which is, on its own, already a pretty big challenge. I mean, take it from us, we're making a whole podcast about that. Capital cities also have to reflect their country as a whole. And Ottawa? Well, over the course of three honking angry weeks this year, where emotions ran high, it failed on both counts. And it failed, at least in part, because of urban planning decisions in the capital itself that were made decades ago. So for this episode, we're going to look at capital cities. What's their purpose? How and why are they built? Who are they for? And did urban design challenges make things even worse for Canada's capital during the recent protests? Welcome back to City Space. As ever, I'm your host, Adrian Lee. For roughly as long as humans have organized themselves into a little something called civilization, we've had governments. Sure, there were a few decades in there, in the Middle Ages, where some governments roamed about from town to town, like a decree-making concert tour by your favorite band, playing all the Hear Ye hits. But more permanent capital cities eventually became the standard, a home for national government, and all the buildings, bureaucrats, lobbyists, and monuments that come with that. That's why the word capital comes from the Latin word caput, meaning head. The city chosen as capital acts as head of the geographical state. You can think of governments as industries in much the same way that you think of like Wall Street and finance or Las Vegas and gambling. So capital cities need to be able to accommodate the industry of government. And that has its own unique qualities to it, right? That's Dave Amos. He's an assistant professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at California Polytechnic State University, 
and the producer of City Beautiful, a YouTube channel about urban design. You need a lot of space to have embassies, for example, because it's a place where foreign leaders come to discuss negotiations with the leader of that country. It also needs to, again, be a place of ceremonial importance where you can have these big events. It needs to be a place where lawmakers can do the business of making laws. So that set of needs means that cities have to have these unique qualities. A lot of thinking usually goes into where to build these places or which existing cities to choose for the honor. Since ideally, you're not moving where you put your capital. And in that process, capitals tend to reveal another job they do. They tell a story as a city about what the country as a whole stands for. I don't know if they have to say something, but they always do. I think capitals always say something about the country. And it says something through the architecture and through the physical design of the urban space. It also says it in terms of where it's located in the country. In some places, the capitals are moved to the center of the country to represent everyone as a central location. While in other countries, it's not that important for other historical reasons. But either by geography or design, capital cities do say something about the nations they represent. But, you know, you have cities like Paris and London, which are national capitals, but also just massive sprawling cities. And sometimes a city being so big means that they can sort of easily accommodate that industry of government. But then you see places like new capital cities where it seems very spare because you're sort of just taking the industry of government and setting it on its own with just the things that it supports. It's a little bit smaller. France, for example, has been defined by its history of political revolutions, which really revolve around who controls the capital of Paris. That's where deposed royals like Marie Antoinette often lost their caput, if you know what I mean. Berlin, meanwhile, is home to Germany's federal parliament, and it's the richest, largest, and most populous city in the country. But the bureaucrats actually work elsewhere, in the city of Bonn. That's a reflection of the scars left behind from the post-war split of East and West Germany. And in Myanmar, the planned capital of Napieda is perfect for the country's paranoid military rulers. It's highly secure, it's remote, and there aren't actually a ton of citizens living there who might get pesky ideas in their head, like democracy or something. Then there are all the capitals chosen or built in the geographic center of a country, such as Madrid in Spain, Dhaka in Bangladesh, and Wellington in New Zealand. Their physical location reflects the political compromises that are constantly being made in the daily process of governance, or it's an attempt to just show unity. And so those capital decisions also often tell us a story about these specific things that a country is trying to unite and balance between. Nigeria, for example, has long had ethnic and regional strife. And so in the 70s, it chose the city of Abuja, smack in the middle of the country, to be its capital, because it was considered a neutral site close to all of Nigeria's regions. And then there's our neighbors to the south, whose capital city tells a story that still resonates almost three centuries after they built Washington. More on that after this. This podcast is brought to you by Novo Nordisk. For 100 years, Novo Nordisk has been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca. After the American Revolution, most Americans lived in the northern parts of the 13 colonies, predominantly in New York City and Philadelphia. But in the end, 
The new capital was built on a swatch of swampland in the southern colonies of Virginia and Maryland instead, in a nod to southern interests like, well, slavery. And that was in part due to the Compromise of 1790. The federal government took state-level colonial debt, and then in return, the southern colonies would get the capital. And that was to basically appease Thomas Jefferson, who was sort of the southern representative in this compromise. This became pretty awkward during the U.S. Civil War, when the Union operated out of a capital that had prospered from the slave trade and then found itself on the front lines of the Confederacy. And little wonder, then, that American politics today continue to be defined by racial compromises. After all, that story is baked into the very DNA of its national capital. And then on top of all those bespoke reasons that countries choose different spots for their capitals, they also have to function as cities. You know, the public communal places that serve as a backdrop for which the lives of more than 80% of us play out. I feel like you've heard me say this a lot. And when you're thinking about all that classic city space stuff, you know how to get the right balance of walkability, density, housing mix, transit, retail, all those little things that make for a good city. Well, capitals have even more unique quirks that they have to contend with. In 1910, for example, the U.S. Congress passed a federal law called the Height of Buildings Act, which put a limit to how tall buildings in Washington, D.C. can be which is why you can see Capitol Hill and Washington's various monuments all around the city. To this day, amid Washingtonians' calls for more density to increase housing affordability or just to modernize Washington as a city, the Capitol is forced to obey that federal act. And few capitals offer better examples of the way that federal government life can really hamper city life. Just think of all the motorcades that clog up Washington's shared streets when POTUS or some other world leader have to move around. Just the mixing of that and you figure out how to do your day-to-day life while there's protests going on or, you know, the streets are shut down for some reason or there's a motorcade and all of a sudden you're late for work. Like there is a sense of disruption that can happen for folks who live there. That's the awkwardness about the capital city's twin jobs. National interests can lay down the rules for a municipality in a way that doesn't really happen to other cities and might not actually be so great for the city itself. So planners and politicians try to keep those jobs separate. Often, but not always, capital city planners put the administrative and government buildings physically apart from the other city things, so that the downtown can just be a place where people live. To ensure this, government capitals typically also get special designations to be their own jurisdictions, like their own district or province. Having that kind of separation in a capital, which also means they're usually quite big, tends to be helpful for the two things that a city like this needs to do. The national capital needs to have the symbolism that a country needs, but it really needs to be a functional city first and foremost, because the day-to-day operations of the government are not sexy. They're not the kind of things you protest about. Like It's just the function of like collecting taxes and you know regulating industry or the things that make a government tick day-to-day. And you need a functioning city to make government run functionally. Which brings us back to Ottawa. If all these things tend to be the best practices around designing capitals, well, Ottawa goes a bit against the grain. While it has a lot of suburban sprawl, the municipality's downtown core is actually very small, and it's very much enmeshed with the federal government. Canada is also one of the few member countries in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, that hasn't made its capital a separate administrative district. And so... 
when thousands of protesters drove into the city to protest the federal government in the middle of last winter, it's no wonder that things got pretty bad in downtown Ottawa pretty quickly. And of course, because capital cities tell us a story, it also revealed something pretty essential about the Canadian experience. Well, I live in Lower Town, which is the heart of the city and the oldest part of the city in terms of settler colony of Bytown, what was called Bytown then. That's Andrew Waldron, and his part of Ottawa is a great little area. It's got the famed Byward Market, culturally diverse restaurants, and some lovely public parks. But Lower Town, like so much of Ottawa's tiny downtown, is also steps away from Parliament Hill. So when people descended on the Capitol to protest the federal government over COVID-19 restrictions, well, Andrew heard all the honking. My area was cordoned off with police checks and so on, so it was very difficult for me to come in and out of my neighborhood. So how did it come to be that a downtown resident, minding his own business, got caught up in an inconvenience that warranted the national news? Well, that requires a bit of a history lesson around how the little frontier lumber town of Ottawa became Canada's capital, back when Queen Victoria picked it as a geographic compromise between Toronto and Montreal in 1857. Fortunately, Andrew Waldron is also a heritage conservationist, architectural historian, and the author of a book called Exploring the Capital, so he's well-placed to explain. Take it away. Our history isn't so peaceful. We had rebellions in 1837 and 38, and that created the provinces of Canada, which is Upper Canada and Lower Canada. And of course, they had a capital and it moved around. It was quite ridiculous. They had it in Kingston. No one liked Kingston. So then they moved to Montreal because they thought, oh, this is great. A mob burnt down the parliament buildings in Montreal. Then they moved to Toronto, Quebec City. They kept moving around. Just going to interject here to say how ironic it is that Ottawa was partly chosen because it wanted to avoid another mess like the 1849 riots in Montreal. Uh, whoops. Anyway, back to Andrew. So in classic Canadian fashion, this is quintessential Canada. This is where the compromise was, what's the least offensive place that no one would get jealous to, to have the capital? Guess what? The governor general goes, hmm, you know, Ottawa could be an option. No one knew really Ottawa because it was so small. It was on the border between the two provinces. So Upper Canada, Lower Canada. So you're, you're in, in between. It was remote enough. But in the end, what happens is, is that once it's the capital, and by the time the parliament buildings are constructed and opened in 1867, there's a lot of public servants that are all now settling in Ottawa. So the first wave come in the 1850s, and really public servants start to push out all these people who are you know, in the lumber industry. And so it becomes a government town pretty rapidly by the 1900s. But while Parliament Hill is built on the pre-existing grounds of a military barracks, city planners seem to underestimate just how big this Canada thing was going to get. People started immigrating to the country in droves. And so Ottawa realized it's going to need more government, a bigger public service, and as a result, more buildings to house all that. And so they stacked them in those early days in the urban center. Right away, you get Wellington Street going down with all sorts of ideas for more administrative buildings, which eventually get built. And same down what's called Mackenzie Avenue or around from Chateau Laurier and the Union Station, where there's also government buildings all the way down. Eventually, especially after the Second World War, 
The public servants themselves moved out into the sprawling suburbs to live. But what remains true today, even through efforts in the early 20th century to make it look more like a beautiful capital worthy of national pride, is that Ottawa's downtown is a small, tight web of an urban core, studded through with government buildings, wedged up against the Rideau Canal, with only a few parkways connecting it all to the outlying areas. It is a very, very tight core. The layering between the federal presence, we call it town and crown. That's our sort of line that we use. There's the crown, there's the Parliament Hill, and then there's the town. And the town and crown, they're almost, they are tightly interwoven. So that can add up to a recipe for a uniquely disruptive disaster. Especially if, say, and I'm just coming up with a random example here, a convoy of loud trucks and cars drives into Ottawa, clogs up the highways, and piles in front of government buildings that are right by people's homes and daily lives. Well, Andrew's got something to say about that. More after this. Since the beginning of our company, Novo Nordisk, a hundred years ago, we have been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives. And while people today are living longer than ever before, Rising rates of obesity and diabetes threaten the health and prosperity of future generations. Together with our partners, we are going beyond medicine to strengthen disease prevention and early intervention, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca. So protesters are jamming the highways on their way to Canada's national buildings of government, which are peppered through the city's tiny, heavily residential downtown core. No problem there, right? Technically, you're not allowed commercial vehicles on these driveways, but obviously someone made a decision to bring them into the core. The fact is, is that once you, once you have this small downtown core filled, then it becomes just a locked-in, you know, gridlocked, locked everywhere. I mean, it's really is, there's no way to get out because it is so small. Like a strategist in a battlefield or something like that, there's only certain ways to come in and out of the urban core. And once you are able to tap those and bring them in, then you cause this gridlock right through this kind of, you know, locked down situation that we had. Obviously, this wasn't the first protest that Ottawa has ever seen. And of course, the right to protest is one of our core freedoms. But the city's design made the convoy, in particular, a really rough time for the thousands of people who see Ottawa as a city first and a capital second. And then there's this other quintessentially Canadian layer to what made the convoy so disruptive. That is, the mess of exactly who governs what in our capital's messy little downtown. I was down there during the convoy sometimes because I live in the neighborhood and they had taken over some of the key crossroads, one called Sussex and Rideau Street that connects to Wellington. In Ottawa, we have municipal, provincial and federal all competing. So a corner like that, it is a bureaucratic nightmare on who owns what, whose jurisdiction it is, who's responsible for what. It's one of the consequences of being a capital and also being a heavily bureaucratized city. You saw the cracks in the municipal government during this. You could see that the municipality doesn't actually have some of these ideas in place. They really rely on the federal government and the federal government didn't really respond soon enough. 
So if a capital city tells the story of a country, what does Ottawa say about the broader Canadian project? Well, the city is bureaucracy central, with layer upon layer of government only too happy to pass each other the buck. When it was founded, Ottawa failed to see how many people were actually going to live there. And it didn't consider that our instinct for polite civility would wind up being no match for divisions across its growing expanse between local neighbors and, say, protesters from elsewhere. That's the national story the design of Ottawa has told us about a very Canadian lack of vision. A capital city really should be a model for how a country wants to see itself. In terms of its governance, sure, but it turns out that the way the city is planned can exemplify the nation, too. A capital may be the head, but should also reflect the whole body. That's why the disunity in Ottawa was so painfully felt across the country. The city's frustration and shame and embarrassment belong to us all. So what if the way forward, after this convoy that grips the country and damaged its capital, was the same thing that we've been talking about here in this podcast series? What if we can show a path toward a better country by being thoughtful about how we make a better city? Ironically, there's now, in terms of urban planning, there's a discussion to actually pedestrianize the whole street, which we've been fighting for for 30 years to pedestrianize. We have very little pedestrianized area in downtown Ottawa. There's a lot of bike paths and there is Spark Street, but essentially the irony is, is that you put a lot of diesel trucks down there and then politicians start to think, oh, maybe it is worth pedestrianizing this area. So who knows? We'll see what happens. So if we're looking for a silver lining for the shutdown of our national capital, maybe it's that we can still shape its story. And as a result, the story of our relatively young country, too. Maybe if the capital can take what happened with the convoy and turn it into an opportunity and a lesson around something like walkability and make people's day-to-day lives better in a way that's as small but meaningful as what Andrew suggests, maybe that's good for all Canadians to see. And wouldn't that be something if that became Canada's story? On the next episode of City Space, we're looking at climate resilience. Climate change is here, and that means cities need to be thinking about how to mitigate the effects that are already baked in. What can we do to make sure our cities survive the increased risks of flooding, forest fires, climate migration, and more? City Space is produced by Julia De Laurentiis Johnston. It's written by Julia, Kieran Rana, and me, Adrian Lee. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Evan Miles of Post Office Sound edits our show. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thank you to our guests this episode, Dave Amos and Andrew Waldron, for lending us their time to record this show remotely. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your favorite city dweller about city space too. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.